Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 45. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him 
and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as ransom of many. Father, we want to acknowledge the fact today that you are a good God, and you've You've been good to us in so many ways. We, we've experienced life this week as a church where we've experienced some real sadness together with families in crisis and going through the pains of grief and loss. We celebrated together with families who have seen weddings take place and other kinds of victories and and then Lord we've walked the journey everywhere between the lows and the highs and you've been there with us and we thank you God that that your heart is for us your heart is for victory in our life and I thank you for this opportunity to lift up your name and praise you and worship you today and I pray that as we continue to worship you through listening to you speak to us through your word god i pray that you would continue to deal with our heart draw our heart close to you take our minds and turn our minds toward you and may we experience a closeness to you today where there's nothing between our heart and your heart And so we open your word now, looking for a word from you, a direction from you. And God, know that our heart longs to be obedient to you as we continue to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for sharing with us today in our our time of, of worship. I invite you to take your Bible and open your Bible with me again to Mark chapter 10. We'll pick up where we left off last week as we continue our journey uh, through Mark's gospel. Many things in life are worth sacrificing for. Um, you know what it's like uh, to sacrifice on behalf of someone or something that you love. Um, I love my dog, and I do not mind sacrificing for my dog because I want him to stay healthy, uh, because he helps make me happy. And I love my dog. I love my wife and my family. Not in the same way that I love my dog, but I do love my wife and my family. And I don't think twice about sacrificing time and energy and resources into loving my family well. Uh, I love my church family. Uh, I appreciate all that uh, my church family is, and I do not hesitate about sacrificially investing time and energy and resources to keep our church body healthy. Uh, I love students. And I never begrudge time and resources 
that I give as the pastor of one of our local high school football teams. I, I, there's so many things in life that I treasure, that I love. And today, God's Word is going to challenge us to evaluate the true meaning of true treasure that we have in our life. Um, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus spoke to the heart. And he's speaking to our heart today. Every disciple that Jesus called, he called them to follow him. And in calling them to follow him, he called them to make him the highest treasure in their life. That meant that nothing was to take priority over following Jesus, over loving Jesus, over serving Jesus. So you and I are going to have a big challenge to face today. Jesus wants us, as we heard in the scripture that was read earlier this morning, Jesus wants us to follow his example in at least three ways. And for the next few minutes, I'm going to use the word treasure in two different ways. Treasure can be a noun, which is what it was in Matthew chapter 6. Treasure can also be a verb, an action word. And that's the way I want to call us to look at it this morning. First of all, back to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, we find that we're challenged by Jesus to treasure gospel, treasure the gospel over goodness. In other words, treasure the gospel over doing good deeds. Verse 17 of chapter 10 of Mark, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to get the picture here. Uh, Jesus is leaving Galilee. We talked about this last week in the first part of chapter 10 of Mark. Jesus is leaving Galilee for the last time. And he's heading to Jerusalem to accomplish his mission. And on the way, this young man runs up to Jesus willingly. He runs up to Jesus he came to Jesus respectfully. He fell down and knelt before him. He came to him honorably. He called him good teacher, good rabbi. And he came with a great question. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Man, I wish more people would ask that question. It's a great question. Great question. But look at verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So once again, Jesus answered this young man's question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers his question with another question. Why do you call me good? Jesus took him to the heart. So 
in, in, in asking him this question, Jesus was actually challenging the understanding of this young man about who he was. Jesus wanted to make sure he realized who he was. Why do you call me good? So, what is the standard for good in our world today? Good is only good when it's compared to something else. Uh, I have a good dog. I've mentioned my dog earlier. You know why I say my dog's good? Because he's housebroken. My dog doesn't bite the mailman. On the standard of being compared to other dogs, my dog is good. So what's the standard for a person being good? As I said, Jesus takes this young man to the heart. The standard for being good in humans is the character of God. And when Jesus asked this man this, young, this, this question, Jesus was simply stating to this young man that he was God. Because only God is good, Jesus said. And so Jesus was making a firm statement that he is God. But he also challenges the area of goodness. What does it mean for a man, a human being, to be good? In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, the Bible says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. When Paul wrote this, he was quoting directly from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. There's no such thing as a good person, according to the highest standard, the standard of God himself. And so Jesus continued to respond to this young man with truth. In verse 19, he said, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. So <clears throat> Jesus took this young man to the bottom half of the Ten Commandments, the lower half, the part that talks about our relationship to one another. And this young man, when he heard Jesus give that answer, he thought he had it made because his, his response to Jesus in verse 20 was, Teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. In other words, he was saying that he was a pretty good guy. He kept a moral standard that was really high. He hadn't committed adultery. He hadn't murdered anybody. He hadn't stolen anything. He honored his mother and his father on the standard of the level of man to man, he was okay. He thought he had it made. But again, Jesus took him to a deeper level. He took him to the first four commandments. The first commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. So look in verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus had compassion on where this young man was coming from. He honestly had tried to keep the moral standard 
at the highest level. Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Jesus had compassion on this young man, and he affirmed his love that he had for this young man. But he challenged his heart. Now, just as Jesus challenged the heart of this young man, I pray that you and I will be willing to open up our heart today and put ourselves into this story. Man looks on the outside, the Bible says, but God looks at the heart. Jesus left the arena of works, of doing good, and he moved this young man to the level of the heart, the, the vertical relationship that he needed to have with God. And so Jesus said, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have great treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowfully, for he had great possessions. Now understand, this is not a universal law that Jesus is proclaiming here, but it is a universal principle. Jesus was addressing a specific person, this young man, with a unique heart attitude. He had put his wealth as a priority over God. But anything a person puts over our priority of God in our life stands between us and our eternal relationship with God. Anything. For this young man, it happened to be wealth. And so he went away sorrowful. He ran to Jesus. What must I do to have eternal life? But he walked away sorrowful, discouraged, because he was not willing to give up his wealth in order to follow Jesus. Money was this man's God. So when Jesus challenged his heart, he went away sorrowful. He ran to Jesus, but he walked away devastated. So let me ask you today. Is there anything in your life any relationship, any possession, any attitude, any habit, any resentment? Is there anything in your life that if Jesus were to ask you to give it up, you would have to walk away sorrowful? In order to follow Jesus, He wants us to put God first. So there's only one way to eternal life. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. It's a free gift from God. Have you received God's free gift of salvation today by being willing to put Him in the highest priority in your life, that nothing else takes priority over your relationship with God through Jesus Christ? That means, number one, repenting of your sin and turning away from your sin. And not 
serving any idol, any person, anything in life above God. Admit that you need God and that you're a sinner. Repent of your sin, which means to turn away from your sin and turn to God and commit your life to living the rest of your life putting God in the highest priority place in your life. I trust and pray that you've done that and that you're willing to do that. In verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Riches are a blessing from God. I mean, there are many examples of this in Scripture, but they can be an obstacle to knowing and trusting God and making Him the highest priority in your life. Having wealth and trusting wealth are two different things, totally two different things. And what Jesus is challenging here is trusting in wealth as your highest priority in life. This is true not only about wealth. You could fill in the blank with anything. Anything that you're tempted to put in priority over Jesus in your life. Wealth was this young man's priority. But you could fill that blank with anything. And if you have anything in that blank that takes priority over God, you're putting trust in that over God, then that's separating you from your eternity with God. Verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished. Jesus said to them, or they said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God, not with God, for all things are possible with God. A key thought here in the mind of Jesus. And that is this. Wealthy people are saved in the same way as poor people. Salvation doesn't come because of what you have or even what you can give. Salvation comes... By you putting God in the priority place in your life through Jesus Christ. I mean, we have examples like Abraham in the Old Testament. You remember Abraham in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 9. God called Abraham to leave his home, to leave his family, to leave everything that he had built in the past. Very wealthy person. Leave it behind and follow him. And Abraham immediately followed. Didn't even know where God was leading him and he followed God. Job, for example, in Job chapter 1, Job and Satan, or God and Satan are having a conversation and, uh, and God offers up Job to Satan to be tempted because God knew that Job was faithful. And in, in the book of Job chapter 1 and verse 11, Job, uh, Satan said, yeah, God, you know that he's going to be faithful to you because you blessed him so much. God said, well, just test him and see. Just don't kill him. Don't take his life. And in Job chapter 13 and verse 15, Job 
literally says, you can kill me if you want to, but I'm not going to deny God. I'm not going to deny following Him. Joseph of Arimathea was a very wealthy person. But he became known for what he gave rather than what he had. He was willing to give up his tomb for the body of Jesus to be placed after the crucifixion for three days. So Peter began to say to him in verse 28, See, we have left everything to follow you. Now Jesus knew that in a sense Peter was telling the truth. Peter was out fishing. Remember, he was one of the first disciples that Jesus called. And Jesus said, put down your fishing nets and come follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And immediately, the Bible says, Peter left his nets and went to follow Jesus. So in a sense, he was, he was telling the truth. There's something to say about leaving everything to follow Jesus. The Bible addresses poverty in a number of ways, at least four different ways. There are people in our world who are poor because they're lazy. They are not willing to be responsible and work. And the Bible never smiles on that. Others are poor because of calamity. They have suffered an illness that has cost them all of their resources, or they have gone through a, a natural disaster that's cost them their, their resources. Others are poor because um, they are exploited by wealthy people. The Old Testament prophets talked a lot about that. In the book of James, uh, chapter 1, verse 29, we have a discussion about people that are poor because they've been taken advantage of by wealthy people. But then there's this fourth category that Peter and the disciples fell in. They're poor for righteousness' sake. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, Peter was justifiably claiming poverty, willful poverty for righteousness' sake. And even though that was tremendously admirable, Jesus carried Peter and the other disciples back to the heart, didn't he? Look at verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So the philosophy of this world says, he who dies with the most toys wins. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus, look at it, he says just the opposite. He's saying that he who invests the most in God's kingdom wins. A heart that's set on God's primary purpose and mission wins. Martin Luther had it right when he wrote the words to 
a mighty fortress. He said, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So Jesus was calling his disciples based on the questions that this rich ruler asked him. Jesus was challenging his disciples to treasure the gospel over being good, the gospel over their righteousness, the gospel over goodness. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good things to earn your way or work your way into eternal life. That's not the way it works. It's a free gift. And the only way you can receive salvation is by receiving the gift that Jesus has provided for us through his life. So treasure the gospel over goodness. Secondly, in verses 32 through 34, Jesus says treasure mission over preservation. Mission over preservation. Verse 32, they were on the road going to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. So here's the picture. The disciples were amazed that Jesus was walking so fast toward Jerusalem that he was actually jogging out ahead of them. That's the picture. And Common sense would say, human nature would say, that if you know you're going somewhere and at the end of that destination, death is going to follow you. And Jesus describes it perfectly, doesn't he? He knows what's going to happen to him. But he's not running away from it. He's running to it. Why? Because that was his mission in life. He knew what his ultimate mission was. And so rather than run away from it, he was running headbound right toward it. The disciples were afraid because they knew what was going to happen when they, they arrived in Jerusalem. But there was not one ounce of fear in Jesus about what was going to happen to him physically. Why? Because he valued his mission. That mission to set you and me free from the penalty of our sin. He valued his mission over the preservation of his life. The disciples were afraid. But there was no fear at all in Jesus. So in verse 33 he said, See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. Jesus states his mission. Now when Mark recorded this, Jesus had already shared this many times with his disciples before, but Mark adds a little phrase in here this time. He says he will be given over to the Gentiles. God will give him over to the Gentiles. The Old Testament 
reveals that God often used Gentile nations, non-believing, non-God-honoring nations, to bring judgment on His people for their sin. For example, the Philistines in the day of the judges were used by God to bring judgment upon God's people. The Assyrians and the Babylonians were used in the days of the kings to bring judgment on God's people. And in the first century, when Jesus was speaking these words, he knew that God was using the Romans, a Gentile nation, to bring judgment on his people for their rebellion against God. So when God delivered Jesus over to the Gentiles, it was part of God's judgment on sin. It was the way God chose to bring judgment on the sin, the ultimate judgment of sin in this world. No one, no one could accomplish what Jesus accomplished by living a perfect life after coming to this earth and allowing His blood to be shed to pay the price for the penalty of the sin of the whole world. No one could do that except God in the flesh. So once again, Jesus had established in His conversation with the rich ruler that He was God. Once again, He states His purpose and His mission in being God to come and to be delivered over to the Gentiles and to be killed after being tortured, but on the third day, rise again. That was His mission. And He jogged straight toward it without any fear whatsoever, knowing the cost, knowing the pain that was involved, and yet He paid that price for your sin and my sin. He did it willfully. He ran toward that mission. So His mission was a higher value in His life than His preservation in life. I can't help but look at my own life and call you to look at your life. How are you dealing with the mission that God has given you in life? Now let me be really clear here. If you've never given your life to Jesus, your mission in life right now is to give your life to Jesus. Because you are dead in your trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians chapter 1. You are separated from God by your sin. And God is calling you to Himself. God is saying to you, I love you. And I have died on the cross to set you free from the penalty of your sin. And so, if you've never trusted Him, if you've never received Him, won't you do that today? Won't you accomplish that first mission by giving Him your life today and fulfilling that mission, that purpose that He's called every life to? For those of us who do know Jesus, Jesus gave us our mission. Before He ascended back into heaven, after 40 days of living here on this earth, after rising from the dead, Jesus said, as you go through your life, as a believer in me, 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the world. My mission and your mission is to share Jesus with the world. January, we started a campaign here in our church called Who's Your One? And I trust that you're praying for somebody. And I pray that nothing is going to stop you from fulfilling your mission to pray for one person that God can use you to bring to Jesus. Because that's your mission. And I wonder how many of us are putting that mission over our preservation in our life today. I challenge you to get on board with the challenge of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of my favorite human beings who ever lived on earth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer challenged the Nazi revolution in the 20th century. He was a person of means, you know, Many people begged Dietrich Bonhoeffer to leave Germany and come to the comfort of America. He had means, he, had, he could afford to do that, and he could have lived out his life in comfort. But he felt that God had given him a mission. As a believer in Christ, he felt like that God had challenged him to challenge the abuse that was taking place of human lives under the Nazi regime. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, on April the 9th, 1945, after being in prison, just days before the prison camp that he was in was liberated by Allied forces, was executed by the Nazi regime. The SS doctor who witnessed his death said Bonhoeffer was a man, and I quote, devout, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. I have never seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. What courage that took for him to put his mission over his preservation. Bonhoeffer sent out one final message to George Bell in England just before he was hung. He said, and I quote, This is the end, for me, the beginning of life. Now, how could he say that? Well, he could say that the same way that Jesus could run toward his mission, could jog toward his mission. Bonhoeffer knew that God had called him to be faithful. The Cost of Discipleship was a book that he wrote that exposed his heart, that put his mission over his preservation. So how can I treasure mission over preservation today? Who's my one could be a part of that solution. So treasure the gospel over goodness, treasure mission over preservation, and then finally this morning as we prepare our hearts for communion today, treasure service over position. 
service over position. Look at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now before we are too hard on James and John, how many times do we pray for lesser things than for the highest things? When you pray, what do you ask for? Are your prayers focused on pleasure and possessions and power? Or are they focused on maximizing your life and resources, on investing your life and resources in people and things that are eternal? The disciples still envision Jesus setting up an earthly kingdom here as the Messiah and setting Israel free from the Roman dominance of their day. They wanted positions of prestige and power in the court that Jesus would, would set up. They still hadn't gotten who he really was and what he really came to accomplish. I wonder how many of us have fallen into that same trap. When we pray, do we pray for God to use our lives to expand his namesake? Or our prayers focused on our needs and our wants and what we desire. Verse 35, or excuse me, verse 38, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. We're able. So when Jesus answered their question, he demonstrated that these brothers still, along with the other disciples, underestimated the suffering and the struggle that was ahead, not just for Jesus, but also for them. When, when Jesus answered their question, he talked about the cup. He talked about baptism. Both of those are references to death. The cup in the Old Testament was often referred to as a sign, a symbol of, of death. Baptism truly is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was talking about his death, and he knew that they were going to be challenged by watching him undergo death. But he willfully ran toward that mission. The disciples thought that they were able to stick with Jesus. They thought that they could stand alongside of him through thick and thin, but we know the end of the story. When the time came and they were pressured, they all ran away. Their aspirations were commendable. But little did they know how weak they really were. We can say with our mouths that we're Christians. We can say that we're followers of Christ. 
But when we have the opportunity to stand up for Jesus and be counted for Jesus under pressure, any kind of pressure, are we willing to stand the test? Look at what Jesus said to his disciples. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Verse 40. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus alone for the penal substitutionary atonement for our sins. In other words, Jesus took on Himself the penalty for your sin and my sin. He exchanged His perfection and His righteousness and His glory to pay the price with His blood for the penalty of your sin and my sin. It's easy for us to say that we will endure anything for Jesus. But most people, just admit it, most people complain about even the most minor problems that we face in life for the name of Jesus. If we're willing to suffer on a large scale for Christ, like these disciples said, we're able, we're willing, we'll go with you to the death. And yet when the pressure came, they bolted. They ran away. So are we willing to let our light shine through the minor irritations and humiliations that we face today that come by serving others in the name of Jesus? Are we? So before continuing on to Jerusalem, Jesus had vital lessons to teach His disciples. And we learn from these lessons today because greatness in the eyes of Jesus come to those who are willing to be servants look at verse 41 when the ten heard it they began to be indignant at James and John and Jesus called them to him and said to them you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. When you think of greatness, what do you think of greatness? Most of the time in our culture today, we think about some athlete, or we think about some uh, teacher, some effective doctor, we think about a loving parent. I mean, when we think of greatness, we think about those kinds of things. But Jesus had a different standard for greatness. Jesus said to be great in the kingdom of God, to be great in the eyes of God, we have to humble ourselves and become like a slave. We have to become a servant to all. And so to be great in the kingdom of God, we have to treasure being a servant, treasure being a slave. Verse 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus talked about the cup dying 
for the sins of mankind. He talked about baptism, dying for the sins of mankind. Now he talks about the ransom. A ransom is when you exchange something of value for something else of value. And that's exactly what Jesus claimed to be. The Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus clearly has chosen to exchange His perfect blood for the sins of mankind. He is the final and perfect ransom for our sins. So again today, many things in life are worth sacrificing for. I mean, we could spend months on unpacking these few verses that we've looked at today. But just to, to sum it up, the, the, the greatest things in life that are worth sacrificing for are number one, knowing God through Jesus and then serving in His name. That's the greatest treasure in life. And until we come to the point where we treasure what Jesus treasured, we've missed what life is all about altogether. By way of application, I want to ask you one serious question. Is there anything in your life that you treasure more than Jesus? Another way of asking that, along with the rich ruler. Is there anything in your life that if Jesus asked you to give it up in order to follow Him, you would have to bow your head and walk away sorrowful like the young man did? Because if there's anything that you own or possess that you treasure more than Jesus, you don't own it, it owns you. And it's going to cost you everything. Everything. So once again, I want to challenge us today as we prepare our hearts for communion. To run to Jesus today. And be willing to surrender your all to Him. And like Bonhoeffer, when you die, it will only be the greatest beginning to eternity that you could ever experience. Father, I thank you today that you've challenged us that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. And for us to have a relationship with you that is living and meaningful and thriving and that offers us a life that truly is worth living, we have to be willing to treasure you above everything else in life. So God, I pray that as we prepare for communion today, that you will examine our heart. God, is there any sin that your Holy Spirit is convicting us of? If so, give us, give us the wisdom and the willpower to confess that sin before you. Because you've promised that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just and will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
to prepare our hearts, God, for communion with you by convicting our heart of any sin that's there. Is there anything, God, that we would put ahead of you in our life? Help us to have the willpower to surrender that to you and make you the highest priority of our life today. God, thank you for giving us a clear picture of what it means to know you and follow you. And as we enter into this time of communion now, God, I pray that you will lead us close to your heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'd like to invite you at this time to take the communion pack that you have and take the bread out and hold it in your hand and open up the cup. And as you hold the bread and the cup in your hand, um, again, we've been challenged by Jesus today to treasure the gospel over our good deeds. We've been challenged to treasure our mission that God has given us over our preservation. And we've been challenged today to treasure service over any position that we might hold in life. Jesus challenged his disciples in that way. And then he sat down with them on the night before he was crucified, the night before his prediction that he gave in this day in their life. He challenged them to take a piece of bread and remember that he came to earth to live as the perfect son of God and the perfect son of man. He took the cup and he said, this cup represents the blood that is shed to pay the price for the penalty of your sin. So just take a minute and hold the bread in your hand and look at the cup, look at the bread. And let's do what Jesus asked his disciples to do. To do. God, thank you that you said this bread represents my body. I came and I lived a perfect life. It was given for you. And this cup represents my blood, which the blood of Jesus covers the sin of my life. And today, God, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do remember what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, once again, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for that great sacrifice that you made for us. And God, along with the sacrifice that you made for us, you, you've called us to a life of putting you in first place in our life. God, I look at what impact that challenge had on the early disciples and how we have the gospel today because they were faithful to, to carrying out the mission that you gave them. And I can only imagine if the people that are gathered in this room and that are 
listening to the sound of this message today, if we would only be as committed to knowing you and following you and carrying out the mission that you've given us, that many souls would be born into the kingdom of God because of the witness that you bear through us. And so, God, my prayer today is that we would be faithful, that there might even be some here today who for the first time would give their life to Jesus. And then for those of us who know you, God, help us to be obedient in following you, carrying out that mission that you've given us. In Jesus' name now, we continue to worship. Amen.